Welcome to Both And with Bessie Graham, your weekly inspiration to help you use your time, talent, and treasure to make a bigger difference in the lives of others. I'm your host, Bessie Graham, award-winning entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience from the grassroots to the hallowed halls. Thanks for joining me. Let's jump in. Barry Lieberman is the co-founder and creative director of Small Giants. She's the publisher of Dumbo Feather and a mother of three. Barry is a Victorian College of the Arts graduate and used to write screenplays in LA and directed a few short films, but decided to come home, get married to Danny, start a family office and the small giant's journey. In today's episode, I speak with Barry about her journey of transforming the financial and intellectual capital she has into purposeful work and a meaningful life. From one of Australia's wealthiest families, Barry has done and continues to do the work of integrating a love and respect for her family's journey with her own path to make something meaningful of her life and owning her voice. I hope you enjoy the conversation and come away with both a sense of encouragement and challenge. Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. Really looking forward to hearing you share some of your story. So thanks for your time. Pleasure. I read an article back in 2015 in the Financial Review where you were quoted as saying, the question is, how can we mobilize the great privilege we've been given to live meaningful lives? And I was wondering if you could just share with us some of the personal journey What has that been like for you as you've kind of grappled with the privilege you have and then deciding how to actually mobilize that and what does a meaningful life look like for you? My brain went in a thousand directions when you were saying that. So you're going to have to steer me back to the question. Basically telling your story of those parts because they're two really important aspects, I think, when any of us try to actually figure out what on earth is our legacy going to be? How are we going to contribute? but in a way that's meaningful for us. So I'm, I'm wanting to hear some of your story with both of those threads yeah. kind of pulled out. Reckoning with the privilege and then the making meaning piece. Yeah. It's a beautiful and rich examination and a really poignant one to start on. For anyone who has layered privilege, privilege comes in many, many forms and all of them should be recognised by us first when we reckon with our biography when we come to terms with and come to peace with our story and our intergenerational story, we weave it all together and go through a process of integration. That's a really beautiful piece of the puzzle that I think most people should attempt in life, which is to live a life examined, to know why you react to certain situations in a certain way. It might be your stuff, it might be intergenerational stuff, but it's good to know your story. So I spent a really, really long time coming to terms with my own story. So that was 15 years of therapy, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which for me was like going to the university of my inner life. 
and that felt like a really worthy spend of my time Mm. given I had lots of layered privilege. And I use the word privilege with a lot of joy. I have no guilt around it whatsoever and maybe that's because of all the work that I've done, but I also feel really proud of the legacy of my family. They were Holocaust survivors on my dad's side and uh, refugee entrepreneurs. So despite the fact that a lot of my own legacy and inheritance comes from traditional 20th century stuff like fossil fuels, I'm really proud of my grandfather and my dad and my uncle. They did what they thought was best at the time. And when you know better, you do better. So that's, I think, the job of intergenerational privilege transfer is that transformation of what was to where you're going and being a good ancestor. So this is all part of that for me. Mm. When I said before that I think privilege is really layered, like I think some people can be born without financial capital privilege, but with a lot of love privilege, love capital, social capital, creative capital, intellectual capital, physical prowess capital, like whatever it is that you have that you are grateful for, even some of the wisdom keepers who are mentors of mine would say that their suffering was also now they can see it as a part of their privilege and that they've had a big life. So I think that the reckoning with the privilege part It should never just be applied to financial capital, A, because that's super boring. Obviously, contextually, socially, we now talk about cultural privilege. So if you had cultural primacy, then you got certain privileges. I think it's all relevant and I don't think any of those privileges should have primacy over others. Because the integration of your story, and I think we're talking about the integration of the things you can be grateful for and have ownership of, like if you can own your own story, that's a really powerful piece of the puzzle because then you can easily get to that reckoning with your story, those layers of privilege. There's a reckoning bit and then there's an owning bit. There's a kind of journey there that's really beautiful and human. I have found it to be for myself incredibly nourishing and supportive. Like there are no shadows in my closet. There's no hidden cobwebby corners that I haven't gone to and examined myself and cleaned out and done a smoking ceremony on. (laughs) And, And I needed to do that because I wanted to do big work in the world. And in my 20s, I was like super ambitious and super out there and bold, but I was simultaneously afraid of my own shadow. And so I would just have burnout when I was doing big projects. And I was like, that's weird. Why don't I have the stretch capacity to do really big work? And then one of my mentors is like, because it's time for you to start therapy. No one can do that work for you. And I was like, okay, cool. Mentors who I admired enormously, who absolutely prioritized doing the inner work. So that was the first piece. And then the second piece around meaning and making meaning in your life, they are connected. So for me, I knew they were connected really early, but I didn't know the way through. The way through is not easy. So it's not for the faint-hearted. But the meaning piece for me was then, you know, really big questions around what is a meaningful life? What is a good society? What is it all for? With all the privilege, and I would say the biggest privilege I had in my life was love. I was very loved, Mm. came from a very loving family, but I had obviously other forms of privilege. And then for me, it was like, how to make a meaningful life? You would absolutely have to be integrating how all of that can be in service of a world I want to leave my children. That's one piece. 
A second part was what is success to me and being able to answer that. I still always have to revise that because we can get lost in the woods a little bit. Mm. Um, sometimes on Instagram, I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's success. I'd want to be in the med on a boat and I'm working. Why am I doing that? And then you <laughs> reset and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm actually living my values and that feels really juicy and nourishing to me. And a meaningful life also was the company that I kept. And I wanted to keep really good company. I wanted to always be inspired and stretched by the people around me and grounded by people who had shared values in in my world. And that's been the life that I crafted. And obviously also with my husband, we share values. And so we've gotten to do it together, which has been really rad and super fun. But the meaning piece never finishes, which is what it means to be human. We're meaning-making creatures. And so... I'm constantly recalibrating those big questions, but those big questions were everything to me. Like I can do small talk, (laughs) but I've always had big, deep, rich, burning questions and continue to. You know, I lost my dad really young. He died when I was a kid and it just became apparent to me super early on. I got the download. We're not here for very long. And so wouldn't it be rad? if we could turn that one precious life into something not only we could be proud of, but my description is always I wanted to have my life in my own hands, like really feel it, really steer it, really know that for better or for worse, my decisions were my own and they were wholeheartedly made and then lived out and that I'm proud looking back. So that's just the long answer to I think really rich, deep opening questions. Exactly, no. And they are, as you said before, so layered. I wonder, you mentioned some of the aspects of like these big questions and things that kind of come up for you. What have been some of those biggest questions or challenges that you've had to grapple with on your journey in this kind of aspect of living the meaningful life and creating that legacy that's bigger than you? Well, maybe just slight alteration of that second. I wasn't trying to create a legacy bigger than me. I was trying to live into my role in the arc of time, just to stand up to the things that mattered and make something meaningful of my life, knowing that we're all stardust. Like I don't have some great egoic fantasy (laughs) of being remembered or anything like that. It was more owning my voice because I wanted to be a role model for my sons and my daughter because I wanted them to own theirs. Like just that sort of Mm. thing was more what mattered and also the transformation of all the financial capital that I had and the intellectual capital that I had into purposeful work. So that was more as a role model than a legacy piece, if that makes sense, slightly different. So just wondering what some of those big questions, the things that you had to grapple with it particularly suppose, since 2007 and the setting up of Small Giant, well, there was thinking that went on many years before that. But in your journey, kind of those big burning questions that have been those central kind of things that have occupied your thoughts. Yeah, the big ones at the start were, of course, incredibly different than the ones we're asking now in a post-pandemic world. You know, for the last 17 years, we've been asking what is success to us? What is a meaningful life? What is a good society? And then also what is the purpose of capital? What is the purpose of capital? Like that is a, I could spend a lifetime answering that. And I have. My answer I got to is the purpose of capital is to be in service of life. There is no other purpose. There should be no other purpose of capital. 
it can have ancillary benefits, like you get to live a life where you don't have to worry about your mortgage. Like those things can be a part of that. But the meta answer to what is the purpose of capital for me is to be in service of life. Then we could do a four-hour workshop on what that means. You know, what does in service of life mean? And I think that given the collapsing ecological container that we're in right now, the sort of disregard and disrespect for our ecosystems and the planet, that's all happened because the economy and the ecology have been separate ideas, but they're, of course, connected and interdependent. So leaning more into that story through our investing and through all of our businesses and all of our entrepreneurship was how to bridge from hospicing the old system to midwifing a new system that could live in service to a living world and a flourishing humanity, mm. if possible. We're living into this hopeful maybe moment. And I think, unfortunately for me, because I love instant gratification, I think I'm not going to live to see the outcome of the work that we're doing. Yeah. For a person who loves instant gratification, I am having to, you know, work on really other, really challenging questions. And this idea of what were the big questions, it's really interesting because I can default to really shit questions. And my husband, Danny, always says, no, what's the useful question? What's the juicy question that gets you to the answer you really want? That discipline is really hard and I need to be surrounded by people smarter than and wiser than me often to reorient me towards those richer questions. And, and they are questions like, what do I want to be in service of? Sometimes we get caught up and I have to recalibrate. Sometimes they're questions like, if you have only a year to live, what choices would you make? You know, yeah. and, and, and we've asked them about really big business decisions. Like we had a fraud in one of our businesses. Oh, we've had it all. <laughs> you just got to live long enough and you have it all. <laughs> no doubt about that. And we've had deep betrayals and projection and like just the human thing, like what will get between us and mitigating a two-degree warming? It's us. We get in our own way all the fucking time. So, yeah, for me, any questions that help me clarify the muck and the mud and the mire and get me to a sort of pure essential oil answer that is in service to my highest values, those are the best questions, but they take some time because you have to work through hurt, you have to work through confusion, you have to work through panic, anxiety, urgency. Well, for me, I prefer to come up with like more long game answers. Yeah more intergenerational answers for what to do with my time. So I'm not being specific enough probably, but these are my sort of like philosophical approach that we come to. I'm wondering if you think about some of the aspects for a lot of people earlier in their journey and the pandemic has been quite a jolt for people of saying, well, what do I want to do moving forward? Like they've had this opportunity to reflect and think in different ways. So you mentioned that when you look back at your family and think about the aspects of some of the privilege that comes from there, there isn't guilt or that sense of discomfort that a lot of people do have, particularly around the financial wealth side of the privilege. I'm wondering though, if you can take yourself back to pre-therapy and understanding the story of your family, were there earlier questions or discomfort in you that you had to really work through to get to this place of understanding and integrating those things? 
it lurked in places around being an artist. So I, I'm an artist. I've always been an artist since I was really can remember in a family context and a world that valued a more patriarchal lens of a success and achievement where financial capital gains and success was success, trying to value inner work, trying to value my creative life. There was a big tussle there for a long time and the discomfort around being an artist and also being a wealth holder that was weird. I went to the Victorian College of the Arts and there was just a lot of conversation around scarcity mindset and creativity. And I didn't have scarcity mindset, but I wasn't ever ashamed, not ever, because I knew how hard my family worked. I knew where they came from and I was proud of them. That was a story of survival and thriving. And I can never, ever be ashamed of that. In the 80s and early 90s, the world was a different place. You know, there wasn't such a big gap our parents' generation had had free university. Like there was still a kind of Australian legacy there of spaciousness and fairness and, and the world's gotten a lot less fair in the last decade in particular, but arguably over the last three decades. So I was still living the tail end of that post-World War II euphoria and a fairer world, a world where the institutions held and people were coming out of poverty and, you know, that hopeful stretch and we're in a, a different time now. So that context is is shifted. I know you, you're saying for your listeners you want more tips around what you do when you do feel those feelings of discomfort and shame around wealth holding or privilege. I think that's individual work to do. You should do it however that works for you. I would say and suggest that the world needs people who are acting from a place of love and wholeness and connection. So if you think that the end of your work around your privilege is fear, anger, resentment, self-loathing, then you haven't finished the journey and you need to just keep going to where you come to terms with and at peace with how you got what you got in this lifetime. And I'd say like, do it fast <laughs> because the world needs a whole lot of people who are empowered and not moving from a place of guilt. The world needs people who are in a state of integration, wholeness, peace, love, joy, pleasure-centered. And I don't mean pleasure like Instagram. I mean like you can fully be present in a, a joyful, loving, pleasurable moment and not discount it or throw it away or be afraid of it. You need to know what it means to love the world, love yourself and love your beloveds fully. If you act from that place, if we move from that place with our capital, with all of our capital, that's the healing the world needs. Like right now, it feels the world is moving and acting from so much fear, so much rage, so much discontent and brokenness and damage. And I fear that that impulse doesn't have healing in it. It only has more damage and division in it. Mm. So I'm always really interested in how to move from wholeness. So I feel like also in a lot of ways, and this is not a conventional thought, I've found it really useful. Dan and I, really early days, he actually put this on the table. He goes, look, we can spend the next rest of our lives proving to everyone that we were worthy, that we could do it on our own anyway, like all that shit around status and proof 
proof of value, proof of worth. And I just want to say, fuck that shit. We don't have time. This is now a real moment in history. Get with this stuff. Like, I don't know, do therapy every day, whatever you have to do, reckon with it if it's stressing you out. Throwing your privilege away is not being accountable for it. Being entitled and thinking that it was your God-given right to be privileged, they're two extremes. Integration is the job. And Dan said early on, he's like, what if we don't actually worry about proof of worth? We skip that bit and we just leverage from where we are because there's no rhyme or reason why we have what we have and other people don't. You can hunt and dig and dig and dig and dig in there for justice, but it's not to be found. It's the lottery of life. At the end of the day, it's a lottery. We won on a number of levels. So now what good can we do for the world? Like from this place, without wasting any time, proving to anyone or being an insecure overachiever, get rid of the insecure bit and just be like, okay, it is what it is. So from this place, how much good can I do? How can I leverage from this place of integration without guilt, without weirdness? Because the world needs us to show up now, yesterday really, with an integrated love of the world and a heart full of service. Yes, there's the urgency piece that you spoke about, but I think as a practitioner and someone getting things done, the other piece that I'm sure you have also learned, like I have over the years, is that it doesn't matter how much time you sit and think and design and plan, you will be wrong when you step into action. Like you will learn things. Again, we only know what we know before we begin. And so part of that process of, yes, do your work. And it's always that ongoing piece of you can't lead others unless you lead yourself. There needs to be all of those personal components. But the aspect around actually figuring out where can you get the most leverage and traction? How do you add value and and show up in that loving way that you were speaking about? You learn that through doing, refine it, get feedback, and also the world keeps changing. So like if you don't jump in there and figure it out, (laughs) you'll be wrong, (laughs) guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, totally. That shit is messy, man. And if I had known how high stakes it was to parent, I would never have done it. I mean, why would you do that? These living, sentient, incredible spiritual beings are like looking at you for modeling all the time. You're like, I just want to watch Netflix. (laughs) So it's like true of everything, anything worthy. You just need to do the doing bit. And I'm with you. Anyone listening to this who just wants all their ducks in a row, never going to happen. Amen. I feel you. I feel you so deeply. I have had that kind of paralysis in my time, but I also married someone who's a doer. He's a better done than perfect person, which is both harrowing. Like I'm like that. No, we can't do that. And he's like, we're gonna, and it's better done than perfect. It's not very Australian. Actually, his nature is to fail. Like he's like, let's fail, let's do, let's fail, let's do. And I'm like, I come from a context of zero failure. Like my people don't do failure. <laughs> and that was probably one of the narratives I had to fight was just success, always success. 30% growth year on year was you know, like my family's cultural story. And I love that story. And I love the story of the patriarchy also. Like I totally want to like curl up into that because then I wouldn't have to 
be accountable for myself. All of that, I get it, but it's just a story and the world needs us to show up. And there's just no getting around that. And so I never have all my ducks in a row. It's really hideous. And I want to be more polished and I want to be more together. But all the humor, all the humanity, all the funny stuff is when everything goes wrong. Not big goes wrong, like when I was talking before about the frauds and the betrayals mm. and the yeah. like the nasty shit that you go, wow, this is big and this is ugly and I want to hide and I never want to have to deal with this mm. and this is crushing. I'm not talking about that. That is at the stretch end of resilience and leadership. But the doing versus the procrastinating yeah. because I want all my ducks in a row and I want the world to be perfect, well, you're not going to get anywhere. And so you just have to get out of your own way and be prepared to take really deep breaths and let it all be messy. I'm trying to teach my teenagers that right now because teenagers are having a lot of stress Mm. and anxiety. Trying to teach them nothing should really make you that stressed, actually. Yeah. And as you said, if you're wanting to step into some of these really big challenges, complex social issues and aspects that require you to interact, with people and mess and complexity. There was a lecturer of mine who had this great saying that always stuck with me, which was that you have to have a stomach for disequilibrium if you want to lead in the 21st century. It's so true because it will never be stable and calm for any period of time. You have to be able to act even when you only know the next step and everything else is unclear. You need to be able to step into that. It's absolutely part of it. Yeah. One of the other things, Barry, that I'm interested in, over the next sort of 20 to 30 years, we're going to have the biggest transfer of wealth that the world has ever seen. And given the experience that you've had and what you know now on the back of sitting with these things for a long time, I have, I suppose, a two-pronged question. The first piece is around what would the advice be that you would give to wealthy families around how to best prepare as a unit for this transfer. So there's some of those beautiful aspects you spoke about of the respect and the understanding of the story and the work that went in. But I do see a lot of people not doing that sort of transfer well or that piece as a family unit. What would you say in that context related to families? Dan reckons this is a rad book. It's called Preparing Heirs. Have you heard about this book? It's by Roy Williams and Vic Presa at Five Steps to a Successful Transition of Family, Wealth and Values. It's actually a great book. I know that to be true because I've heard him. He teaches on it as well. Um, We've got an amazing course called Journey to Impact, which is particularly about helping with those intergenerational conversations and steering portfolios towards impact, which is what the next generation are going to want. They do want already especially female heirs, which is also a huge cultural shift. Women in families being in charge of core capital, not philanthropic capital, which is a very different kind of capital Mm -hmm. that's held very differently in power dynamics in families. But to answer your question, there's an ideal version Mm -hmm. and then there's everything in between. So the ideal version is that your parents, the first generation or the wealth holders, are emotionally available enough to hold the space for a family counsellor to, you know, like first thing I would do is book and go on a series of retreats as a family. If you've got the different generations, and I would say all the way to seven-year-olds, if that first generation are able to stay emotionally available enough for the beginning, middle and end of that strategic design, 
of intergenerational wealth transfer and there's a feeling of safety, love and respect in a family and there are a lot of those families. Then get an amazing person who can help you navigate these issues. There are a lot of family advisors who specifically do this kind of work and I can recommend some if people want, but there are beautiful, beautiful people who can really facilitate those values-driven philosophical conversations, those big family conversations around what do we care about generation one, generation two, generation three, someone who can hold the difference between those and bridge those where everyone can listen to each other. Like if you still have generation one alive and willing to talk to you, oh my God, I'm telling you from someone whose grandfather died, father died, that's a privilege just to hear their story around why they generated the wealth. So if your family are open to it, go on some retreats, have those conversations and weave those emotional and values-based conversations into a strategic design for how you're going to roll it out in the future. And work with advisors who are able to hold the bigness of that conversation and who aren't just in allegiance with one generation in particular. You need advisors who everybody trusts and are really good translators and weavers who can help you come up with a pragmatic outcome on the other side, like family mission statement, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a really layered conversation. So if you're able to do that, awesome. When you're not able to do that, it's harder. It's so much harder because what I know to be true is that our financial capital behaves however our inner life is behaving. It's a direct extension. So if you are disempowered in the money story in your family, yeah, all of those emotional dynamics in a family often play out in the financial capital story and the power story around that. So if you're someone in the family who wants to really move this dynamic, shift it, change it, become empowered from disempowered, I say, amen, you're going to have to go out and do your own work. And often when one person in a family starts to do that inner work and shift big things internally, something shifts externally and things open up and change. But it's a big road. You know, this stuff is really, really gnarly and I've been doing it for 27 years to greater and lesser success. But I would say on the whole, pretty successful. And I was really lucky that I had a life partner who was deeply with me on that journey. So I've had a lot of things go really right in quite a tragic set of circumstances. But I also orient towards gratitude. I look for what's going right. And I knew my therapy journey, for example, I knew that was part of going from disempowerment to empowerment. I knew that was a journey I wanted to take. So I took charge of that. I was like, what does empowerment look like to me? And maybe sort of following on from that. So the second part of the question really is about for the individual who is in the seat of potentially that transfer of wealth coming to them and and the work that needs to happen there, particularly around, and you mentioned the aspect of you being an artist in a family where that was a very different thing. So how does someone have that experience but keep a sense of themselves separate to maybe what the wishes or values or patterns might be in their own family and think about what this might look like for them. So if we come back to that whole idea of 
what is a meaningful life? Well, the fact is each of us have a different answer to that, even within a family. So what's the aspects at the individual level for someone to sit with or think about in anticipation of that transfer? Yeah, do the work, 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 do the work. I now, as an artist, I've never stopped being an artist. I integrated all of those disparate ideas I had about what it meant to be an artist and a filmmaker and everything I learned as a creative practitioner, as a performing artist, I was an actor, I'm a musician, like everything I learned, rhythm, pace, dialogue, relational fabric, beauty, joy, All those things are present in a board meeting. You realize that financial capital is the same as creative capital if you are able to make those connections inside yourself. That's why I keep talking about the inner work and the outer work, the inner work and the outer work. If you can toggle really robust work between the two where you become financially literate, like you need to get with some pragmatic tools in the outer part of your life. Like if you don't know how to read a balance sheet, like just learn how to do that. There's plenty of YouTube tutorials. I don't know, like find someone who can, without being patronizing or pretentious, answer your dumbest questions. Be vulnerable and just be dumb. No one really cares. And if they care, they're weird. Get rid of them from your life. Be around people who value you being vulnerable and having questions. And then they have to have the patience to answer 7,000 questions. You are allowed to have questions and you are allowed to not know. So that's in the outside world. And don't be intimidated at board meetings because they're all making shit up and no one actually knows what they're doing. And most people are experts in their lane, but you know, be a weaver if you can. Like if you're like me, I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist by nature. I'm really curious about everything. I'm like, whoa, what is that? And this and that and this. And so I learned that was my strength actually. And I was always told, do the one thing, become a specialist. You know, when I was in film, I was a director and a writer and an actor. I was a whole lot of things. And that has served me incredibly well. I see my work in the world of business, entrepreneurship, investing, at a board level, all the way through to operations. It's all connected. They're not different disciplines. It is the richness of your own humanity and your skill sets are applicable no matter what they are. I promise you they are applicable to this transfer of wealth. If we're specifically talking about that, any of your particular gifts, you also need to be able to hold in your hands and recognize and acknowledge your own gifts and what you bring so that you can't be shaken off your core. And I think that's also really important. It can feel really daunting really vulnerable. I was never strong at maths. And so when I started going into board meetings or I started reading balance sheets or whatever it was, I wouldn't hear words. I would just hear and I was like, oh, shit, I'm a goner. You can feel cortisol levels going through the roof and you get stressed, especially if money numbers, if you've been demoralized around. And I wasn't necessarily. I'm just saying if there are people listening to this who have been particularly demoralized around money and and everything related to numbers and stuff, you're going to have to just keep putting that down. Every time you feel it coming up, put it down. It's okay. There are plenty of people that can help you with that and just make sure there are checks and balances that you don't get taken advantage of on that journey. And 
I'm going to say this one out loud. Be wary of advisors yeah. because advisors have no skin in the game. I say be wary. You've got a whole paradox. You both have to trust people and you have to take advice from people that you admire, who you think have your best interest at heart. But at the end of the day, the lonely part is where you have to know that you are the one with skin in the game. You are the one who is holding the high stakes fallout or outcome of a choice that you're going to make in this transfer time. And also it takes time. We made a decision very early on that we didn't want to break our family apart. Like I knew with the death of my father and tragedies in our life, you know, Dan and I early on, I said, whatever happens, whatever decisions we make, I want to be able to have Friday night dinner with my family. Mm. I don't want to cause a rift because we stand on our ground about something and we're unmoving depends on your family dynamics of course but that's a beautiful kind of guiding you know when you actually have something like that then as you're making decisions that can be a bit of the touch that you come back to that and you say okay in doing this how does that play out with something that's a central decision for us that we have said we value I didn't want brokenness of further brokenness Mm. there'd been enough pain suffering and loss and my mum is still here and I wanted her to have a lifetime of having her children sit around her dinner table wholeheartedly. Mm. And it's been tough, you know, and there have been many moments, but overall worth it, 100% worth it. And it was lucky that we had those thoughts when we were young because when you're younger, you can be a bit more of a bull in a china shop and mm-hmm. in service of fairness and um, maybe some kind of righteousness, you might want to do things that later you'll regret. So, Try to be close to people who are wise, not clever, wise. Yeah. And they help you be the best version of yourself as often as possible. Even though sometimes you're like, what the fuck isn't everyone else being the best versions of themselves? Why do I have to be the one to, in the arc of a life? I think you'll see the benefits of, I'm seeing the benefits of the times I've swallowed my self-righteousness or whatever it is yeah. in the moment and made a decision from my higher self yeah it's super annoying just like I want to be clear it's (laughs) super annoying but a worthy practice it's good to develop our our character over a life and and feel like oh yeah I remember I made that decision for the greater good I didn't want to be an agent of brokenness no and when you think about that aspect of family I'm curious what would you say are your hopes for your own children in terms of how they mobilise the the privilege and live meaningful lives? And are there specific things that you and Danny are intentionally either modelling or teaching your kids around around that to try to equip them in ways that potentially you may not have been equipped when you came into this? My mum was an amazing mum and still is. Like I really value she was always open she was always very human with us, very kind, very loving, very generous. And I feel that there's a lot that kids learn via osmosis for better and for worse. And I'm really honest with my kids. We have a really loving family. So I think that just as a container, I feel really lucky to have been able to provide them with. Dan and I, beloved of each other, like we have a lot of respect for each other. We work together. We sit at the same desk, as I told you. So I think that stuff, from what I understand, from anything I've ever read or known, that's really 
a gift. But I think the kids just pick up on things said and unsaid, tangible and intangible. They're probably getting to the age where I want to have more specific, structured family discussions about how and what. We have done our wills very particularly. We've both written each of the kids a letter that goes with our wills. So it's a letter of our values and intentions and hopes and dreams for each child. I think that if I had had those letters, oh my God, wow. Mm -hmm. I hunt around in old videos of dad to be like, what was he like? What did he care about? What did he think about? You know, and he had lots of letters, just like letters to himself on planes, trains, and automobiles and hotels. And I read them when I was 21. Like you want that from your parents, but also our wills are really interestingly structured where the kids are empowered at certain ages, sort of 18, 21, 25, 30, and then a parachute at 42. You know, there's like interesting ways you can do things like that, if that's what you mean. But also I think my biggest tool is trying to honour the inner life of my children like each one of them, I honour their inner life first. That's been my priority since they were babies. They would internalise love and belief in themselves and they would be able to listen to their own inner voice and that voice would be a loving one. That voice would have the honouring in it so that they could trust themselves when things get tough and the world goes crazy because I don't know what legacy we're really leaving them. I'm on this podcast, to be honest, pretty terrified um, of a destabilised ecological environment, collapse of ecosystems around the world. I'm hoping we'll be able to mitigate with the work that we do, all of us around the world. Hopefully everyone listening in this call is now an impact investor and is building topsoil and leaning into renewable energy and all that great stuff. But I don't know, it looks less stable than it's ever been. It definitely looks different to the world that I grew up in. And that is outside of my agency to control. What I am able and have agency to control myself, so I continue to work on myself all the time and we talk to them you know we really talk to our kids we're really with them and pandemic was a gift in a lot of ways on that level the presence I'm probably sounding a bit vague but that's like what I really think about when I think about them have they internalized enough love that no matter what challenges come at them they will have the inner strength to deal with it and hopefully live meaningful lives themselves. And they know they will be coming into financial privilege. They know, obviously, the container of their lives. And I I hope that we're also teaching them that's a privilege, not an entitlement. Yeah. As we wrap up the conversation, I'm wondering if you thought about, so if we had like a time machine and we could go back to, let's say, when you founded Small Giants. So if we jumped back to that point in time, what would be the advice that you would give yourself if you could go back? Oh, that's a really good one. Shit, that's really hard. Yes to everything, which is what I did anyway. (laughs) I haven't learnt this lesson yet, so I'm going to say it while I'm thinking it. Something around how to take the hits something around perspective, something around when you feel hurt and lonely, confused and surprised, 
by the actions of others and the state of the world come back to love. Beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for going on a bit of a roundabout journey with us there and sharing some of that. It's really important to just hear different people's experiences of and what it's been like to actually go on, as you said, the journey that doesn't end. It's not like we figure this thing out, put it in a neat little box and then move forward. But I really do appreciate your vulnerability and and sharing with us. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. And I'll just say it as a kind of caveat at the end. Can you have a caveat at the end? (laughs) I can now. (laughs) It takes time. All, all this stuff takes time and, and maybe I would also say to myself, be kind to yourself on the road. Be kind to yourself on the road. This stuff is big work. I think it is intergenerationally healing and it really takes time. I feel like it's been four or five years since I started and it's been 27. Wow, you know, and when I look at that, I go, oh, yeah, that needed to take the time that it needed to take, especially if you don't want to break things. So be kind to yourself on the road. Thank you. Thanks, Bessie. Thank you so much for listening to Both And with Bessie Graham. You know you were born to do something significant, so don't leave it to chance. Join me each week to pick up quick tips and ideas that will support you on your journey to live and lead a meaningful life. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode and leave us a review so that other people can find us and feel a little less lonely and a little more supported on their journey of leadership. If you haven't joined our Facebook group yet, you'll find the link in the episode notes. Please join us. Thank you so much for being a part of the community and for tuning into the show each week. See you next time. Cheers.